Welcome back to the Athletes for Justice podcast. Y'all, this is going to be dope. My homie Josh Doltzler is joining us for this podcast. We actually met on a horse. I know it sounds crazy. You're going to hear this story in a little bit. We met on a horse, but we talk here about not only what it means to move slow, but also to feel pain and to be a light in dark places. This man has a phenomenal story. I'm not going to give any more of it away. Just tune in. Make sure to like this podcast, share this podcast, subscribe to the podcast. And I can't wait to hear what you all think. So we're just going to hop right into it. Josh, what's good, bro? My brother. What's up, man? Thanks for having me on the show. I've been excited to have this conversation just to hang out. Any reason I can hang out with you, sign me up. Hey, but people don't know the the first time we hung out, (laughs) (laughs) we had some horses in the back. We had some <laughs> so hey, I was looking at those pictures. So my daughter just turned eight two days ago, and we took her horseback riding. And she said, Daddy, have you ever ridden a horse before? And I went back and I was showing them pictures of when we were on the horses in Colorado. Bro, you was cheesing the oh, biggest so smile on that horse. It was, I mean, that was a fun experience. That was some of the happiest I've ever been. So background. So Josh and I met four or so three four months ago at this uh i don't know leadership thing in colorado and we're both you know athletes and you know black dudes you know what i mean riding horses and i've never ridden, rode, i've never been on a horse before i don't know had you had you been on yeah, I, had, I had ridden before they, okay. they had the, the different groups like the starting group and then they had the more advanced And I was like, I got to be with my brothers. For some reason, all the brothers was in the beginner group. And I was like, I got to be with my boys. And it was uh, well worth staying with that group. It was so fun. Yes, I got I have to post a picture. I was that was like the most peace, peaceful. Blanco was my horse's name. I was just going to say you was on that white horse and you you guys was just chilling. We were chilling. We just had a connection. We had a connection. Um, And that's when we met. That's when we met. And there was something about you that I just noticed right we're at this leadership thing and there's a bunch of you know younger leaders older leaders and i heard a little bit about your background which we'll get to in a little bit and i was like i got to get to know this dude so you so your background just real quick because this is athletes for justice podcast so i got to talk a little bit about uh your background mind you you just ran in a in a olympic level triathlon or just competed so we get we're gonna talk about that but also you played basketball at creighton which first of all that's awesome second of all that might've been the reason I lost my bracket. Cause I had Creighton winning it all because of you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hey, sweet 16. I mean, sweet we 16. did get to the sweet 16, but yeah, we struggled a little bit. Yeah. So tell me about like your basketball background. We're going to talk justice. We're going to yeah. talk nonprofit. Um, but tell me about that story. Yeah. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about my story leading up to basketball. When I was two, you know, my parents moved into uh, what was considered the inner city in Omaha. My dad's a white guy from Iowa. My mom's African-American from Washington, D.C. And uh, my dad was a chemical engineer, felt like God was calling him to the mission field. And so told God, we'll move anywhere except for North Omaha, which was our inner city. And uh, so I always tell people, don't tell God what you won't do. And so <laughs> we, we moved into this community, our family. And growing up, love what my parents did, but our neighbors were murdered, house was shot at. I mean, just experienced tons of, of just violence and crime. And, 
And so the saying in, in inner city communities is work hard, get an education, and you too can move out of the ghetto. And so that was, I mean, I tell people that was the same for my life. Like I, I wanted to do anything and everything I could to get up out of the hood. And uh, for me, I thought basketball was my ticket. And uh, so I went through high school and uh, as a freshman in high school, I was getting recruited by Creighton, Nebraska, Kansas, and uh, would get recruited by a few more schools, but actually committed to Creighton my sophomore year of high school. And uh, at the time was the youngest player to ever commit to Creighton. Junior and senior year would go on, would win back-to-back state championships, would win about every award uh, that I could win. And so I went to Creighton on a high and uh, was pursuing my, my, my dream of playing basketball. And uh, really when I got there as a freshman, uh, shortly into the, the season, the coach gave me the keys to the team and was like, hey, Josh, like this, this is your team, take over. And uh, for, for maybe those who are a little older in the basketball world, speaking of March Madness, uh, you might remember the, the run that um, George Mason had. And when they went to the final four, so, so my freshman year, we played George Mason at George Mason the year they went to the final four and we beat them by 20. Hmm. And uh, we had a, we had a pretty good team and uh, had a few guys get injured. And with six games left to go in my freshman season, I stole the ball. I'm dribbling down the court and I get tripped from behind. And I'll never forget. I landed on my right knee. I, I get up and I took a step. And anybody who's ever been injured before, that, that first step I took, it felt like my knee was like almost twisting within my leg. And so I would go out of the game. This is right before halftime. Uh, you know, I, the adrenaline and I'm competitive and, and I put a knee brace on and I go back out and I play the rest of the game. And uh, long story short, I would miss the rest of the season. I would try to rehab, try to come back. I, I would find out that I tore my PCL. And uh, would have to go to Minnesota to get a special uh, surgery. They, they had to put an Achilles tendon cadaver in my knee because it was the only thing strong enough to hold my, my, my knee in place. Hold, hold on one second. So because I, <laughs> I heard like you and I, we talked and you told me some of this story, but I didn't get a chance to ask yeah. you then an Achilles tendon cadaver. Well, tell I mean, me. Think of how tight the Achilles tendon is. Mm hmm. And, and so the, the Achilles tendon, like a lot of times when you tear your ACL, they'll take a part of your like hamstring muscle and use that to kind of put your ACL in position. Well, the PCL is behind the ACL. And, and so just the way it holds your knee together, a lot of times people tear their PCLs playing either football or in car accidents because of the, the way it happens. Very rarely do they do it in basketball. And so it was kind of a freak injury that nobody, no doctors in Omaha felt comfortable even doing the surgery because it was so unique. Wow. And uh, so had to go and get this special surgery and, and they ended up putting that Achilles tendon, uh, Achilles tendon cadaver in my knee to hold it in position, had to wear a straight leg brace for six weeks and then would start the process of trying to get my mobility back which was probably one of the most painful things I've ever, I mean, I've ever had to go through. Hmm. So a cadaver, that means it's from a, from a, from a dead body. From somebody who's deceased. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Um, I was so, like, is he black or is he white? Cause <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and um, I was like, it don't matter. Cause I'm mixed anyway. So, <laughs> uh, so, so you went through that. Um, obviously trying to recover from that is difficult. Yeah. Um, what was next? 
Yeah, I mean, you go through an injury like that again. For me, it was like everything was trending up athletically, sports-wise. Uh, from Omaha, I go to Creighton. Creighton's a smaller school, but we averaged over 16,000 fans that would come to our games. And so uh, would get injured and then would try to come back. And they said this injury takes about a year to try to come back. And I tried to come back in about six months. And there's no reason I should have been playing, but I mean, I'm pretty competitive, wanted to be back. The coaches wanted me to be back. And so uh, I go from kind of this, this high of basketball to now this, this space where I'm struggling. And the truth is, Sam, God really used it to get my attention and grew up in a Christian home, great family. But I tell people I was really a part-time Christian. I, I was, you know, read my Bible part-time. I'd go to church part-time. But my dream was to pursue a life in sports and athletics and basketball. And that was where I was going until it was taken away. And then God started to show me, Josh, there's a lot more to life than basketball. And I started, started to show me too, is when you get hurt as a freshman, you start to realize, man, I, st I better start to think about what's next. And uh, at the time, I was dating uh, my, my now wife, and we had been dating for about a year, met her my freshman year of college. And uh, I was in my dorm room the beginning of my sophomore year, and I was, I was rehabbing. I was starting to come back, but I was still at a pretty low point in life. And I felt like God said, Josh, either serve me 110% or don't serve me at all. And uh, I was like, okay. And I uh, told God, I said, I want to serve you 110%. And I felt like with that, he said, all right, I want you to get married to your girlfriend. And I'm like, hold up, get married in college. Like I'm a, I'm a college basketball player. I'm an athlete. And uh, I knew what my coaches would say. They would, you know, look at me as somebody who's distracted. I knew what my teammates would say. I'll never forget getting on the bus and telling when I, when, when Jen and I got engaged and telling my teammate that we got engaged, man, I was so embarrassed, bro. <laughs> but I felt like it was a, it was a step of obedience that God was calling me to take. And so we would get engaged my sophomore year. We would get married going into my junior year. And it was really, God was preparing us for the next season because uh, for the next three years, they were the most difficult years athletically that I had ever experienced. I went from tearing my PCL, trying to come back too soon my sophomore year, seven games uh, back my sophomore year trying to play. We were at a tournament in Hawaii, uh, the Rainbow Classic. And uh, on my birthday, December 21st, I dive after a loose ball and I, I, I felt something in my hand. I get up and my, uh, my pinky was uh, sticking out to the side. And so I go out of the game, they snap, you know, pull it back in position, wrap tape around it. I go back in and two plays later, I'm going after a loose ball again. And I jam the pointer finger on my left hand. And I didn't know it at the time we played that I finished playing the game that day. I would play two more games in a row. Then I we come back to Omaha. I would get an x-ray and find out that I shattered all the bones in my pointer finger on my left hand. <laughs> Had to get surgery. There's a, a metal pin in there today. Um, I mean, ended up having a, I got my tooth knocked out the next year, trying to take a charge. I had some stuff with my ankles and my shins. And so just experienced a lot of injuries over the next three years, a lot of challenges. Uh, but I was married. 
number one. And number two, God was changing me. And, and he was really, I mean, I went from being a C student, you know, people ask me, why'd you go to Creighton? Why'd you go to school for basketball? <laughs> I mean, the truth is I didn't have a vision beyond sports. And I went from being just like a C student to uh, getting on the honor roll and, and really just starting to grow and learn, take life a little more seriously and uh, start to think about, you know, what was next. Y'all started having kids soon thereafter. What was it like? I didn't plan on asking this, but what was it like having your first child? I mean, you, you've got a few kids, you know, the, I think the process to having your first child is great. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 uh, you know, we, we, so we were married for two years, junior year of college. <laughs> you just get now. I just got it. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, hey, we were married for two years and, and, and I come from a family. I don't know if you know this, but I'm one of 14 kids. I've got, I've got 13 brothers and sisters. Uh, my parents had 11, three were adopted. And so I'm number five out of 14. So I grew up in a, in a big family. Uh, my wife's the youngest of three uh, girls. And so, uh, you know, for me, I was always around kids. So we got married junior year, senior year. And then we were kind of saying, all right, God, wherever you send us, that's where we'll go. And two things happened. My dad said, hey, you can come serve with our nonprofit. And I'll pay you $1,000 a month and you can figure out what you want to do in life. And so we, we said yes to that kind of begrudgingly because we didn't necessarily want to do it, but we felt like it was a good uh, place to transition to. And then number two, we had been praying that we would not get pregnant until after we graduated. And bro, you can, you can go back. Our son, our oldest son is 11 and there's a chance that we got pregnant with him on one of our graduation days. <laughs> yes. And I, I will say this though. I mean, my wife, when she found out we were pregnant with our first one, I mean, she just started crying. She thought life was over. We, we were not ready to have children, but I feel like God has just had us on this fast track in a variety of ways. I mean, we were married at 21, uh, had our first son, Joshua at 23 she was 23 and uh life has just i would say been like that for us mm. it seems like so much of your life has been somewhat of this crash course towards your calling if you will yeah and there's so much that i want to get to but for whatever reason you know you you said your dad said anywhere but northern nebraska and and I mean, as we, we know, Omaha is one of the most segregated cities yeah. in the United States. Yet somehow you ended up in Omaha. Why? That's, that's, the, that's the question that my wife and I ask God all the time. <laughs> and, and I mean, obviously all of it is, is God and his plan and I think he sets us all up for the story that he wants to tell through our lives and the calling that he has on our lives. And as I look back on my life, you know, I grew up in North Omaha, this inner city context, but we were also a part of uh, churches in the suburban context. 
and in the predominantly white context. And my dad, a lot of his family lived in Omaha. And so uh, they're from rural town, Iowa. And so I was always exposed and honestly always lived in multiple worlds. Then I go to Creighton. Creighton is considered a very prestigious university here in Omaha, Nebraska. And, and so even just going to Creighton and, and being in that position of influence has allowed us to really, I would say, be a bridge in our city. Like, like you said, Omaha is one of the most segregated cities in the nation. Omaha also has, per capita, some of the most millionaires in the nation. I mean, this is the home of Warren Buffett. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of wealthy people in Omaha, also per capita, North Omaha, where we live, has some of the highest rates of minority children living in poverty. In 2007, Omaha was considered the third worst place for African-American men to live. And so there's incredible prosperity, but there's some real poverty too. And, and, and those two, uh, environments are separated by like 10 minutes or less. And so Omaha is a very unique city. And, and the story I think that God has been telling through, through our lives is uh, a story where he's called us to be a bridge and a bridge between the prosperity and the poverty and a bridge of hope and a bridge between uh, races and, and to be a bridge of racial reconciliation. And so, I mean, you asked the question why, honestly, we both wanted to leave. Our, our hope was to either go overseas or move to another state. And, and for whatever reason, God has continued to keep us here. But we recognize, too, it's for the calling that he has on our lives. Tell me about some of the work you do in Omaha. I mean, yeah. so there's so much of your story. Uh, you talk about racial reconciliation and being a bridge. And that's kind of who you've always been and what you've always done. Then obviously 2020 hits as well. Like, what is it specifically that you do to be that bridge? Yeah. Well, I can say this first. I, I've stepped into my calling kicking and screaming. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes we look at people who are playing different roles in, in the ministry context, even in the world context, in the sports arena. And we think, you know, it looks good from the outside but there are a lot of challenges at play. And uh, specifically in our story, it was in 2010 that my dad had started a church several years earlier and he handed that church over to myself and another guy. And the guy he handed over, the, the other guy who I was co-leading with, he had just spent seven years in prison. And uh, we, we used to say all the time, who could have imagined that God would bring an ex-Creighton player and an ex-convict together <laughs> and they would be leading the church. Hmm. And uh, the, the context of that church was on a weekly basis, breaking up fights. And, uh, you know, after one Sunday service, two young people would get arrested for a murder that happened, uh, you know, a couple days earlier. And it, it was just, it was this incredibly rough environment and context that I honestly didn't even want to be a part of. And, and so out of obedience, though, you know, my wife and I just continued to stay the course and continue to, to be a part. And, and, and I would say you fast forward to 2020 and we've been able to be a voice in our city for a lot of the racial challenges and tension that's gone on, but it's, it's been because of this journey that we've been on. Hmm. And, uh, we have a nonprofit abide 
my parents started about 30 years ago. And, and our mission is to revitalize the inner city one, one lighthouse at a time. And uh, that mission uh, entails uh, putting lighthouses in the most violent neighborhoods in our city. A lighthouse is a home that we refurbish and then we put a family into that home and that, that family becomes the advocate in that neighborhood. It, it started with our family living in one of the most violent neighborhoods, living in that community, working in that community, and the police telling us this neighborhood that was once one of the worst is now one of the best. And so we know wherever we have a lighthouse presence, crime decreases by roughly 75%. And so we've got 67 lighthouses all over the North Omaha community. And, and that's where it starts for us. But then it moves to, to building stronger families. And this is where we have a, a campus where we uh, have programs, sports programs, education programs. We've got a church uh, that leverages this campus to really develop individuals to help them reach their God-given potential. And then the third thing we do is we raise up leaders here in the community and uh, that won't transfer out, but will actually stay and decide to be a part of the transformation that we're, that we're doing. And so we do all this through partnerships all over our city. And, um, you know, part of our work is really helping share this message. A lot of the racial tension that happened in 2020, we've been talking about this for years, but this is, this is what I said about those videos. I mean, I think all of us can remember when we saw the Ahmaud Arbery or the George Floyd video. And the thing that I've said is, is those videos gave us visuals to voices that have been crying out for generations. I mean, for, for, for many people in our world, they never had visuals like that. They've heard the voices of people saying, man, this is what I've experienced. This is the challenges. But those videos gave us a level of visuals to connect with those voices that have been crying out. And so for, for most of us, it got to the place where we can no longer turn our heads. And so for us, the, the, the message and the, the conversation around race and injustice is a conversation that, that we were really able to lean into because of some of the, the events of 2020. You talk about how those videos gave us visuals. When you saw those videos or your wife, what, what did you experience? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember first seeing the Ahmaud Arbery video and just being shocked. I mean, I remember hearing about it through other people, but then watching it and then rewatching it and then rewatching it. And, and I just remember my wife and I were just laying there and are just like, are you kidding me? Like, what, what are we watching right now? I cannot believe that we're actually watching this and just being, I think everything from frustration, anger. I think part of it, like as somebody who, who works in the environment we work in as somebody who's black, it, it, there was a level of frustration because so many people in the white community were saying, man, we didn't know. And, and, and so for us, we're like, man, we've been trying to, we've been trying to share. We've been trying to say it. I, I, I did, I did two podcasts right after Ahmaud Arbery, Arbery happened. One with a major pastor of a suburban white church and one with a major of uh, a, a pastor of a major black church in our community. When I did the podcast with the, the white leader of the suburban church, he was like, 
you would have thought nothing happened. And he was, he, he was just having a great day. He was full of excitement and joy. And at that time, he didn't know. And I remember having this podcast interview with him. And I remember thinking like, man, should I tell him? Like, should I let him know what's going on right now? And uh, we, we went through the podcast. And then probably a couple hours later, I had this podcast with this African-American pastor. And he, he was distraught and sad as if he had just lost his son. And it was such a picture to me of the, the, wor the different worlds that we're living in. And for some people, like they weren't even aware because there wasn't a real connection to the reality of what happened. And, and then for those of us in the black community, I mean, it was as if that was my brother. When you saw George Floyd, it was as if that was one of my relatives. And you feel the, the pain and the frustration and the hurt. And, and watching the videos and then seeing the way people re were reacting. So, I mean, it was, I, I would say this, I remember saying this to a leader. I said, this is the first time in my leader, leadership journey. I feel like I'm leading from a place of frustration and I feel like it's okay <laughs> because I feel like the moment it, it required, it wasn't just a conversation we were having. I mean, there was a level of conviction that says we got to do something different. We can't just keep talking about this as pastors and leaders. We've got to be a part of the solution in, in some very practical, tangible ways. During that season for me, it was just really hard to say yes to anything. Yeah. Think about it, whether it's a podcast or a thing you had scheduled or even some posts. Like I was doing some partnerships with some people and it was like, yeah, post about how you work out. I was like, I can't post about how I work out right now. I can't post about right. my, a supplement. I can't even, it's like, I, I can hardly breathe. I was so frustrated and yeah. so perturbed and disturbed. And it, it seems a little bit like now it's almost like this new season of oh, we can breathe again in so yeah. many ways. Yet there's still so much work that needs to be done. Going back to those lighthouses, I think about because people listen and they say, well, what can I do? Yep. How can I help? I don't I didn't know or I wasn't aware. Now I am aware, but I want to take action. When you first came up or when you all first started building those lighthouses, was it one of those things where it was like, I can't do this? Or is it like, hey, I just brought people together and now we're seeing change? How, yeah. Like, what was that process like for and, and speak? I'm talking about for the from the place of someone who says, I want to do something like I feel yeah. that pain. I might be black. I might be white. I may be Asian. I mean, but I just need to do something. And maybe it's a lighthouse. Maybe it's a it's it's something more. Talk us through that. Yeah. Walk us through that. Guide us through that. Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. And I think there's so many people that still do want to be a part of the, the solution and want to be a part of seeing change happen. You know, the lighthouse concept is, is interesting in the sense of it was really, we put language to a lifestyle that was happening for 20 years. And, and for 20 years, our family and my parents lived out what I would call this life lighthouse lifestyle. 
And a lighthouse lifestyle is really built on the great commandment. Love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And, and, and for us, we would define neighbor as where you live, those people that are next to you, where you work and or worship, those communities, those areas where you hang out. And then number three, where there's need. And for all of us in our city, there are places and pockets of great need. And so a, a lighthouse lifestyle is intentional about loving people in those three different areas, loving our neighbor where we live, where we work or worship, and where there's need. And, and that intentional uh, lifestyle, you know, whether it's specifically centered around the, the race issue we're talking about and the justice issues we're talking about, or whether it's just inviting people into your life and getting to know them and encouraging them to be all of who God has called them to be, specifically with this race issue, I mean, there's three things that I encourage people to do. Number one is, is to learn. And I think so much of what 2020 taught us is, is how much we don't know and the history of our, our country and the history of slavery and, and Jim Crow laws and, and, and moving uh, towards uh, civil rights movement. And, and there, the reality is there has been a narrative or a system that's played out for generations. And we're called to understand if, if we don't understand that system, we can't be a part of the solution. And so number one, it's learning. Number two, it's serving. I think in every city, there are individuals and organizations that are doing something about this issue we're talking about. And one of the best things we can do is, is come alongside those individuals and those organizations to serve with them, to add fuel to their fire and to learn from them. And then the third thing is, is I encourage people to invest. I think there, there is a reality to financial investment. And, you know, when you look at redlining and again, some of the racial challenges and issues that are out there, there's a reason the average black family has one tenth the, the resources as the average white family. I mean, there's a reason that in my community, businesses aren't thriving and aren't growing. And so I think ultimately we can, we can put our money where our heart is. And when it comes to issues of, of race and justice, we have the opportunity to really make a statement and, and show people what we're for and what we believe in by, by making financial contributions and investments. I'll end with this really two things. Um, first, you talk about this investment. Like if someone wants to uh, invest in helping build a lighthouse, where do they go? That's, that's part one. So I'd love to actually have you answer that first and I'll yeah. get to part two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If somebody wants to join what we're doing in building a lighthouse, you can go to abideomaha.org and connect with us. We're, we're working on um, building a platform to help everyone be a lighthouse wherever you live. Because we believe it's not, it doesn't just work in the inner city context. We believe it's transferable to every context. But you can join us. You can support us in the physical refurbishment of that home, which is taking it from being an old abandoned house to a fixed up home, which helps decrease crime and violence in that neighborhood. Two, also, you can help support the families that are in those lighthouses. Okay, so that's, so that's one way. And you talked about even helping. How do we do the, you said you can, have lighthouses in other communities. How is that? This is, this is one B. I still got a question too, but yeah, yeah. Like no, so, so we're, 
number one, we've had other people take this lighthouse model and they're trying to, they're trying to live it out where they live. So we got a group in Alabama, Kansas city. Those are, are really individuals who have come, they've learned from us and they've gone out, but we're in the process of building a platform that people can tap into and, and get access wherever they are to live out this lighthouse lifestyle. I love that. The lighthouse yep. lifestyle. Then question number two, I usually start the podcast this way, but I want to end it, end the podcast this way. What is justice? How does it play out? How can we be advocates? Yeah, I think, I think justice is the opposite of injustice. <laughs> and anytime there is injustice, things that should not be a reality, things that happen to an individual, things that happen to communities, that are inconsistent with the heart of God, that's where injustice happens. And, and I think there's economic injustice, there's uh, relational injustice, there's uh, spiritual injustice. And as followers of Jesus, ultimately we know that true justice is found in Jesus. But even in Jesus and in the world we live in, there are things that happen where people are treated in inhumane, unjust, unjust ways. And we're called to be, come alongside and be a part of the solution. And so I think justice is, is, is wherever we see injustice, we know that God has a better plan and we get to be a part of reconciling those individuals and those communities to God's heart and plan for their life. Well, Josh, thank you so much, my brother, man. I remember, like I said, I have my horse in the back. <laughs> you were leading the charge. You had your horse in the front, just leading the way. But man, from, from our meeting each other a few months ago, uh, to me just being attracted to you and who you are and what you bring, and then watching you lead your family well, watching, to, watching you uh, continue to compete. You just competed in this Olympic-level triathlon. Um, your kids were there watching you. Your wife was there cheering you on. Uh, it makes me say, okay, I could be a better dad better husband, a better leader, better man. I, I know I would, I know I said last question, but I do have one more. What's next for Josh Doltzler? Well, I, I just got to say this before I answer that question. Right when we met, there was an instant connection. And I feel like it was probably for a couple of reasons. Number one, you sat next to me. You say, man, I could beat you in basketball. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did. I saw hey, the way you were walking. I'm hey. like, I <laughs> I like that competitive spirit, man. I think that's one of the things, you know, that there's, there's some things that never leave us. And that competitive spirit is one of those, which is why having a goal of like doing a triathlon and doing some of these things, it's like, man, I feel alive when I'm competing. And I know you can, you can relate to that. That's, that's one of the things that I always, I loved about just how our relationship got kicked off. But real talk, man, you are one of the most humble just genuine, joyful, e even the book you wrote, let them see you is all about vulnerability and just the way you've lived in our interactions together, man, you've encouraged me. You've challenged me. I've just been so blown away by your humility. And, uh, it's been fun just being able to rub shoulders a little bit, even if it's been more at a distance, but I'm excited just to see what God continues to do in your life and uh, to see how he continues to allow us to, to, to partner together. And uh, I think that leads in for me to, to, you know, what's next. Honestly, I don't know all of what's next. 
uh, I, I'm, I'm reading a book right now called Leadership Pain by Dr. Sam Chan. And uh, it, it probably is a picture of the season I'm in and a season of transition, a season uh, where our house has been under construction for the last uh, two months where we've had sewage in our basement. And I mean, it, it's just been one of those challenging seasons, but God has reminded me and, and this book, the main point of this book is you can only grow to, to the threshold of pain that you can endure. And God has just reminded me about the power of pain and how it's essential in the process to reaching our full potential. And, and I'm excited for what God is doing because I know he's growing my capacity in this challenging season. And so, uh, you know, whether it's podcasts like this, whether it's writing books, God is opening up doors. I'm excited about those opportunities. And uh, I'm excited to look back on this season and to see how God used it to really propel me in all that he's, he's calling me to do. Wow. You said it's called Leadership Pain? Leadership Pain by doc, Dr. Sam Chan. Yeah. Well, we'll have that for all those listening. We'll have uh, that book in the show notes. My book as well, Let the World See You, will be in the show notes. A link uh, to Abide um, will be in the show notes as well. Um, I know there are some people who are listening here and they're, they're just they're listening because of you, right? They, they, you heard you're going to be on. And so they may not know a little bit about me, but man, I appreciate what you said, uh, even about that book about vulnerability and about letting the world see you. It's funny, we were talking offline and I mean, we talked a few months ago and we kind of were trying to figure out what's next and yep. and just life. And and God has really done some amazing things in my life with talking about let the world see you, then being on TV now all the time, which is amazing. Yeah. But you talk about that. that I mean, level how ironic of, is that? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Let the world see you. And now God has you on these shows on ESPN and in a variety of shows on TV and uh, they seeing you mm. and, and that work that he did on the inside is coming out and mm. people are experiencing it. Ooh, I can't wait to have you on my podcast, man. Come on. Hey, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. And that'll be next, man. So Josh, I appreciate you. Yeah, bro. Uh, my brother and my friend. Um, you're a real one. Appreciate you, bro. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Josh Doltzler for joining us. So for those who don't know, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but he's got a phenomenal podcast as well. It's called the Influence 2, like the number two, Influence to Impact podcast. You can find that wherever podcasts are shared. Obviously, the links to Abide is, are in the show notes. The link to my book, Let the World See You, How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes. It's in the show notes as well. Um, thank you all so much for joining us on this journey. This really is a journey that I think a lot of us are going through. And so I can't wait to be back with you all next week. Bro, 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 bro.